Well, welcome once again to City Church. I'm so excited to be with you today for part three of our series. We're talking about things that Jesus never said. Um, I don't know if you've ever met somebody like this. Uh, as a pastor, sometimes you meet people that say crazy things, and, and it's always interesting when you meet somebody kind of out in the community, and you introduce yourself, you start getting to know them, and especially if you've known them for, for a little while, like if it's a kid on you know, your kid's ball team or something, you've interacted with them four or five times, and finally they get to the question, well, what do you do? Uh, and you're always a little bit nervous to say, well, I'm a pastor, especially if it's somebody who's like just cussed uh, or, or just talked about how wasted they got last weekend or something. It's like, well, I'm a pastor, and all of a sudden they get really, well, I, I was just a little tipsy, Right, so they start walking stuff back real quick because they think that you're judging them and they think that they've got to live up to some standard. Uh, so it's always interesting, but sometimes you'll meet people like that and, and they'll say something like, well, well, pastor, or especially down here, they, they'll call you preacher when they find out you're a pastor. Well, preacher, I tried that Jesus stuff and, and it just didn't work for me. I, I tried that Jesus thing, that church thing, and it didn't work for me. And I always ask them, well, how did you try it, right? Like, what did that look like? What did, what did you try? Uh, and how did it work? And, and a lot of times people will be like, well, you know, I went to church for six straight Sundays. Uh, and in those six weeks, my girlfriend cheated on me, I lost my job, and my dog died. Like, they start singing a country song about everything that happened wrong while they were in church for six weeks. It's like, you know what? It just wasn't for me. I didn't need that in my life. And, and I wonder how many people are out there that feel like they tried the Jesus thing, but because in the midst of their attempt to follow Jesus, their attempt to be a Christian, things started to go wrong. They, they received a message in that that, hey, this isn't for me. And I wonder even more than that how much of that is sometimes our fault as the church. Not city church specifically, although maybe we have some responsibility, but the church in general, because I think sometimes we make the mistake of giving people this idea that, man, if, if you'll follow Jesus, everything's going to be perfect. If you'll follow Jesus, everything's going to go right. Man, Jesus is the solution to everything, which he is. But if we're not careful, we give this idea of this perfect package of following Jesus. And the reality is, and you know it, if you follow Jesus any longer than a day, that, man, sometimes there's some bad days come, that come with following Jesus. There's, there's some trials, some troubles, some tragedies that we all experience even as Jesus followers. So today in part three of our series, Things Jesus Never Said, we're going to look at how Jesus never said you won't have bad days. It's not a promise that he made. In fact, the opposite is actually true, and we'll discover that as we go this morning. Um, just to kind of keep with our theme and what we've been doing through the series, let me give you a, a few things kind of around this idea as we begin. Some things that Jesus never said. Jesus never said, whoever does the will of my Father will always get the best parking spots. You ever go somewhere and just think, man, I, I deserve that spot, and you get there and there's no good spot. Man, I'm, I'm mad. God, why didn't I get that spot? Jesus never said, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll always look good in your swimsuit. Aren't you glad swimsuit season is behind us for a little while? That pressure is off, but he never promised that for us. He never promised, seek first the kingdom of God, and you'll never get a zit before prom. Uh, zits are, are one of the great 
dividers in life. You've got poppers and non-poppers. How many poppers do we have? You'd be honest. Uh, a few others who are on. Okay, I'm right there with you. I'm nasty. I'm a zip popper. I'm a scab picker. I'm gross. I'm sorry. Uh, but one thing you learn if you're that person is you compound your problems, right? Like you may not always be able to control if you get a zit, but if you choose to pop the zit, you've chosen to have a mark on your face for a lot longer than you would have if you'd have just let it play out. Uh, and I think there's some illustration in there for us. Uh, sometimes we compound our own problems, right? We don't cause all of our problems, but if we're not careful, we can actually increase the length of those problems in our life. The reality is this. Jesus never promised if you follow him, you'll always be happy. You'll always be healthy. You'll always be wealthy. He never promised that your Wi-Fi would never go out, that you would keep all of your hair, that you'd never get turned down for a date, that Netflix would never raise its rates on you unexpectedly. He didn't promise those things to us. In fact, he really promised the opposite. In John chapter 16, we found Jesus in a conversation with his disciples. We find him actually with his last conversation before he's going to go to the cross. In less than 24 hours, he's going to take thorns in his school for me. He's going to take whips in his back 39 times. He's going to take nails in his wrists and in his feet. And as he knows the suffering he's about to experience, I think there's some real emphasis and importance on the things that he has to say to his disciples as he's getting ready for the cross. And so in this conversation he has with them in John chapter 16, he says this. He says, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Hallelujah, praise God, following Jesus is the best, isn't it? You will weep and you will mourn while everybody else celebrates. It's not one of those verses that we're ready to go get tattooed on our bicep, right? That's not one of those things that we're ready to, to stand on and claim, but these are things Jesus actually said. Now, the immediate context, of course, is he said this to his disciples, to these 12 who are about to watch him die, their mentor, their Lord, their Savior, the one they looked up to, the one they were so close to. And so the immediate context is for them, but I also believe there's a general context here that if this was the expectation of what the disciples were going to go through, and I'm a disciple, I'm probably going to weep and probably going to mourn at some point while the world rejoices. I just did a funeral on Friday for a family that I don't know. Uh, just an opportunity that came to me. And anytime you speak to somebody as they're literally mourning the death of a loved one, someone who they cared about, someone who was so significant in their life, you're reminded of the trials, the tragedies, and the troubles of this life. Jesus says, very truly I tell you. In other words, this isn't just for some of you. This isn't, man, this could happen. This isn't, hey, be warned, worst case scenario, there might be some weeping and mourning in your life. He says, I'm telling you, I'm promising you, it is going to come. He doesn't stop there, thankfully. He says, very truly I tell you, you will weep and you will mourn while the world rejoices. Then he says, you will grieve, but, praise God, for another big, beautiful but. But your grief will turn to joy. 
He says there's going to be weeping. There's going to be mourning. There's going to be bad days. There's going to be bad seasons. There's going to be bad months. There's going to be bad years. But you need to know this. The day is coming where that grief is turning to joy. And then he makes this illustration in verse 21. He says, as a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. How many ladies can identify that there's some pain with bringing a child? into the world, right? That, that is probably the thing that we consider as like the most painful physical thing on earth. I've been an eyewitness to three of these births. Uh, my old, first one, uh, Judah, was e- completely the opposite of what I expected. Like there's this stereotypical Hollywood movie thing that you see as a kid growing up and you decide this is how every birth is, right? That the woman's water breaks and you rush into the hospital and it's like, it's going to be go time. It's my time to shine. I am driving the getaway vehicle. We're going two wheels into the hospital to make sure we get there on time, right? Like I was ready. Didn't go that way at all. Um, It was a very long, slow process. In fact, so slow that I think in the hospital overnight, uh, I may have nodded off once or twice. And if you want to score points with your wife, that's a great way to do it while she's in pain and anguish of childbirth is start dozing off uh, temporarily. Please don't take my advice. Uh, Please don't do that. These things that Jesus definitely never advised. Uh, So I failed a little bit. The, The next one, Alexa, our daughter, was the movie stereotype. I mean, to a T. Like, we're sitting there on the the bed, getting ready to go to bed, and next thing we know, there's water on our bed, and this isn't the 80s, so we don't have a water bed. So it didn't pop, right? Like, we were like, did that just happen? Is that, is that what I think it is? Uh, and so we rush into action, and we do, like, we're flying to the hospital, and, and we get there, and we got some bad news. With Judah, we had plenty of time, and so Melody took all the meds that she could get, uh, which is wisdom, in my opinion. I'm like, yes, do whatever you need to do to make this as comfortable as you can. Well, we get there with Lexi, and we ask for some medicine, and the doctor says, no, she's too close. She's, She's coming too fast. You can't have anything. Not just you can't have an epidural, you can't have a Tylenol. Uh, And so my wife, who I will respect this for the rest of my life, she gave birth to a child without an aspirin, without an ibuprofen, without any painkiller whatsoever, 100% au naturel. Uh, She experienced that pain and that anguish. And of course, because this is just the way that life works, it wasn't just the birth of one of our children that she had to go through this for. This was the birth of our largest child. Uh, Alexa was 8 pounds, 11 ounces. Judah was 5'11". So we got this kid who's 3 pounds larger than the previous one, and this is the one that she has to bring into the world with no medication. But here's what's crazy. We have this child, and she decides she wants to do it again. She wants to have another baby. She suffers all this pain and all this anguish with no medicine, no painkiller, no help. And she says, I want us to have another child. And so we had a third kid. We have a Noah also. Why? Because as painful and as excruciating as childbirth is, the thing on the other side of the birth was even better. Right? Like, like as bad, as low as the pain is, the high of bringing home that child, of raising that child, of being with that child is even greater. And so I got to see this woman survive that, push through that, man, ace it like a champ and say, you know what, let's do it again. Now, she didn't say let's do it again with no painkillers. We had time to get the painkiller the next time, praise God. But, but she chose to have another child. And Jesus, of all the ways he could illustrate the pain the disciples are going to go through and the joy that's going to come when he returns, he chooses childbirth. He says, man, it's excruciating. 
It's awful. He's, in other words, Jesus is not diminishing or watering down our pain. Right? Jesus is not saying, man, things are, things are going to be so-so. It's going to be, man, it might even have a bad day here and there. He says it's going to be like childbirth. If you've seen that uphand, you know this is, this is a metaphor that is communicating some real significant pain. Some real significant difficulty. Some mess. Right? But he's saying there's something worth it on the other side. Verse 22, he says, so with you. Now is your time of grief. This season, this broken world that we're in, this time before the return of Jesus for us is our time of grief. But he says, I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And then he says this beautiful statement at the end, and no one will take away your joy. You know some joy thieves? You got some people in your life that, man, you bump into them, and it's like they've just got a gift for stealing your joy. Maybe it's somebody at work, and, man, you wake up on the right side of the bed, and you're feeling good, and you're, you're speaking life. You're prayed up on the way to work. You're like, man, this is going to be a good week. This is going to be a good day. And you bump into that person, and it's like, phew, right out the window, right? Everything falls apart because they, they got a gift for stealing your joy. Maybe you live in the same house with the person with a gift for stealing your joy. Maybe you look in the mirror and you see the person with the gift for stealing your joy. But Jesus says a day is coming when nobody will steal your joy. The enemy who has come to steal and kill and destroy, there's a day coming when your joy will be in a place that it can never be taken away. That's an awesome promise. That's a beautiful thing that Jesus has said for you and for me. And Jesus, in, in this context, he, he makes this compare and contrast between in him and in the world. We're going to see it a little bit further down in verse 33 in the same conversation. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So Jesus says, there's this life over here in Jesus, and then he says, hey, in this world, there's a different life. He's going to compare and contrast in him and in the world. In fact, he's going to use the phrase, this world, in this world, 19 times in the upcoming verses. In fact, what he's about to do, he's about to pray over his disciples. And as he prays over them, he's going to make a lot of statements about the world, a lot of things that he's hoping that they are prepared for, mistakes that they do not make in this world. He's going to say, I came from the Father to the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. He's going to say, peace I give you, I do not give as the world gives. He's going to say, if the world hated me first, it's going to hate you. He's going to say, if you belong to the world, you will love it as you love your own. But he says, do not. You've been chosen out of the world. He's going to say, don't take them, talking to his father about us, out of the world, but protect them in this world. So he keeps talking about the world, the world, the world. He's painting this picture that this place we live is broken. It's fallen. It's not the way that it's designed to be. And so as often as we can, we've got to step outside of the world and into Christ. We've got to get our mind in Christ, our heart in Christ, our focus in Christ. Because if it stays in this world, there's going to be a lot of suffering that comes with it. Let's go back to verse 20. Um, actually, no, sorry. Let's go uh, back into verse 33. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, another compare and contrast, you will have trouble. It's going to happen. 
You're going to experience trouble in this world. It is a byproduct, a side effect of your life on earth. Pain is a promise. Struggle is a certainty. Suffering is inevitable. Those aren't the things that we get real fired up to say amen to. But we've got to be clear and honest about the reality. Why? Because Jesus was. If we're not careful, we're going to communicate stuff about Jesus that Jesus didn't communicate about Jesus. We're going to paint this rosy, perfect picture of life following Jesus and not actually give the real truth that, man, there's going to be pain in the midst of this. There's going to be difficulty in the midst of this. There's going to be struggle in the midst of this. But Jesus never failed to warn us. He prepared us. He made sure we understand. The reality is this. If pain is a promise, then there must be some time of purpose behind what God would allow his children to go through. And when I say allow, I don't mean that God causes every amount of pain in your life. I don't think he does. I don't think he causes most of it. I think there are certain situations where God's trying to get our attention, and he will bring us to something on purpose. But the reality is in this fallen, broken world, stuff happens. Trouble happens. Struggle happens. And God uses that stuff to make us better. Maybe you're in a season today, you're at a place today where this message really is for you. You feel left out, you feel overlooked, you feel rejected, you feel alone. You've lost your confidence, you're battling depression, you're feeling anxious, you've just received some bad news, you've got a financial struggle you're dealing with, you're in the midst of a health challenge, your relationships seem to be in shambles. The pressure just feels inevitable. There's more on your to-do list than any human can possibly accomplish. You're afraid. You're hurting. You're overwhelmed. No one seems to understand. And you're asking the question today, where is God? God, I'm trying to follow you. God, I'm trying to do the Jesus thing, but it seems like time after time, things are falling apart. What do we do in that situation? Well, I want to encourage you this morning with two benefits of troubles, trials, and tragedies. Two benefits that they will bring into your life. The first one of these benefits is trials, tragedies, and troubles prove your faith. Trials, tragedies, and troubles prove your faith. What happens is when you experience a trial, tragedy, and trouble, it's an opportunity to see how deep your faith really is. A few months ago, we studied the book of 1 Peter. And in case you weren't here or maybe you don't remember, the context of this letter is Peter, this famous disciple of Jesus, this right-hand man of, of our Savior, is writing to the church, and he's writing about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, it's somewhere between AD 60 and AD 65. And so it's either right before this great persecution of Christians begins in Rome or actually right after it has begun. Regardless of the exact timing of it, we know he's writing to prepare them that they're going to suffer. There is suffering coming, and in the New Living Translation, in verse 6, it says this. He says, so be truly glad. Everybody say, truly glad. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. How many say, sign me up for that? I want wonderful joy, right? Like, it's not a trick question. I'm not, like, baiting and swishing you. We all want wonderful joy. He says, be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. I love that phrase. He uses it over and over again in talking about the persecution, talking about the stuff they're going to struggle with. He says, it's going to just be for a little while. These trials will show you 
that your faith is genuine. What's happening in this context is Nero, this very evil emperor of Rome, has begun this great persecution of Christians. Told you uh, a few weeks ago that one of the things he did to martyr Christians is he would tie them to a pole or tie them to a tree. He would cover them in wax or in oil, and then he'd light them on fire. And he'd host garden parties in his backyard to the light of Christians who were being burned alive. The culture in Rome was so sick, so sadistic, so twisted. That wasn't the only thing they did. Another thing they would do to use Christians for entertainment is they would take Christians who had confessed and professed Jesus and they would stitch them or tie them in freshly... Freshly killed coats of wild animals. So they put them in, in some sort of a, a deer or a buffalo or some sort of animal skin that still smelled like animal. Uh, and they tie them in that and then they throw them out into the Colosseum in front of all these spectators in Rome. And they'd unleash some sort of wild beast to go eat them. They would use wild dogs, they'd use lions, they'd even use some tigers that they'd captured from India. They'd bring in all these most ferocious beasts they can, and people would celebrate as they watched these Christians get eaten alive. In that context, Peter says, be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead. Man, that's some depth of some faith right there. To survive that, to to understand that, hey, God has something for me in the midst of that. But look what it says in verse 7. It says, these trials, whatever trials you face, I don't know about you, I've never faced a trial like that. Chances are most of us in this room are never going to face a trial like that. We may face some difficulties. We're not going to face that. He says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. Genuine. If the Bible tells us that there is a genuine faith, we can infer that there is also a counterfeit faith. And the great fear of doing ministry in this generation, in this culture, in this context, is we got a lot of Christians running around right now with the counterfeit faith. A lot of Christians who have a surface faith. A lot of Christians who make it to church six weeks in a row. But man, if life happens, if things start to go south, if things start to go the wrong way, there's no root, there's nothing holding us in Christ, and it's very, very easy for the enemy to bring just a couple little pieces of brokenness in our life, and we're out. I'm done. That Jesus stuff isn't for me. You've probably seen some of these people. Perhaps like me, you've been this person at some seasons in your life where you You say the right things. You know how to go through the motions, but the depth of sincerity, of love for Jesus just isn't there. If there's a genuine faith, there must also be a counterfeit one. Jesus told a parable that illustrates this in Matthew chapter 13. You might be familiar with it. It's called the parable of the sower. There's this farmer who goes out with a bunch of seed and starts sowing the same seed on four different types of soil. And depending on what type of soil the, the seed hits, the and the plant grows differently. So one of the examples that Jesus uses in this metaphor is he says it falls on thorny soil. And so the seed that thro- falls on the thorny soil, it, it grows up. It actually produces a plant. It produces a crop that grows, but before long after it grows, it gets choked out by the thorns. And it withers. And if you've ever seen a plant like this that was choked out and withers, before long there's no evidence there was ever a seed planted there to begin with. 
I don't know about you, I know some people who grew up in the faith, who saw something, got excited about Jesus, were passionate about Jesus for a little while, and then life hit. The thorns of life, the worries of life, the concerns of life hit, and that faith started to wither. And if you were to look at their life today, there's no evidence there was ever a seed there in the first place. God forbid that would be any of us. God forbid we would be people or a church or a generation of a counterfeit faith. God, let us grow roots that hold. Let us grow roots that withstand whatever attack, whatever trial, whatever trouble, whatever tragedy we have to face in life. Let us have a genuine faith. You see, trials actually help prove our faith. They show us that, man, we've grown. They show us we've developed something in our walk with God. Sometimes we get sick and we're like, man, God doesn't love me. I know when I had COVID a couple years ago, man, my, I started to question, God, where are you? God, will you show up? Because it, it kicked my butt. It was a difficult season. You may have experienced something much more serious than what I experienced with COVID. Maybe you get rejected from grad school and you start to think, man, God's not really there. Maybe a loved one dies of cancer and you say, man, God doesn't really love me. Maybe you question, can I even trust him? Let us be people of a genuine faith. John 16 said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. You will. It's part of the promise. I don't know what kind of church background. I know we got lots of different church backgrounds here. I grew up in a church where we used to say this. We'd say, somebody would say, God is good, and the rest of the people would say, all the time. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? And then you'd say all the time, and the church would say, right? There's this awesome statement, this declaration that God is good all the time. And the reality is it's easy to say God is good all the time when we're with a church full of other people that love Jesus. Man, we've got an awesome worship experience when there's a, somebody who's fired up. Yeah, we can say it, and we can say it together, and man, we get excited about it. But I wonder how often you get the bad diagnosis. And your response is, God is good all the time. I wonder how often you go to a funeral of somebody that you loved and you weren't ready to say goodbye to. And you make the declaration there all the time, my God is good. I wonder how often you get an unexpected bill in the mail or North Central goes up. It's just like tripled from your last bill. And you're like, you know what? God is good all the time. If I'm being honest, that's not my immediate reaction either, okay? I haven't mastered this. I'm not a, a perfect Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But I need you to know we need to be people who stand on and believe that God is good even when circumstances are not. Even when life doesn't seem to be treating us well, even when others don't seem to be recognizing the infinite worth inside of us, we have a God, a Savior who does, and he is good all the time. Because all the time, my God is good. Amen? Amen. See, the reality is, if you're standing still today, if you're still here, it's good evidence that your faith is real. If you're still worshiping in the midst of a trial today, it's good evidence that there's something going on inside of you, that God is turning your grief into joy. Truth is this, a faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. Someone whose faith has been tested, somebody who's been through some difficulty, that's the kind of person to look up to in the faith. That's the kind of person to aspire to be. That's the kind of person to look to because their faith can be trusted. See, 
trials, tragedies, and troubles. They help us. Number two is they prepare you for your purpose. They prepare you for your purpose. Number one, they prove your faith. But secondly, they prepare you for purpose. All of us in here are are good Christians, right? We're all people that would say the right thing. So if I asked you a question like, hey, do you want to grow in your faith? You would say yes. Hey, do you want to improve in your ability to pray for people? You would say yes. Hey, do you want to make a greater impact on the world around you? You would say yes. All of us would say yes. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in us. And man, he leaps when we hear those opportunities. There's something in us that desires a deeper faith with God. All of us want to be stronger. How do we get stronger? Well, newsflash, ease and comfort have never built strength. They just don't. Ease and comfort never build strength. Yesterday, we went to touch a truck in Olive Branch, and we took our kids, and it was my idea to take the boys, because I mean, I thought the boys are going to be into this, and they're going to love it, and actually, Alexa was, wanted to go in every single truck, and Judah was like, ready to go after two trucks. So I whiffed on my, I, my reasoning, but it was still a win for my daughter. So we went to touch a truck, and then we went to Chick-fil-A. We're at Chick-fil-A, uh, and as we're sitting there waiting for our food at Chick-fil-A, in walk two bros. These are like CrossFit bros. You could tell, like, these are, these are gym guys. I'm not a gym guy, as you can obviously see, uh, but these, these are gym dudes, and so they're wearing, like, skin-tight t-shirts, showing off, you know, they've got not just biceps, but triceps and shoulder muscles and neck muscles and all this, and then they're wearing, and this is, like, the worst thing, they're wearing, like, these little bitty shorts. I don't know how little bitty shorts became a thing for guys again. Uh, I grew up in the, in the baggy pants generation. Uh, we wore shorts, like, past our knees, and so these guys with these little daisy dukes that are skin tight, hugging their butt. I don't get it. It's not, not me, but I'm old, right? So, so these guys walk in, but that wasn't the biggest thing about their outfits. The biggest thing about their outfits is they had on these white t-shirts that had the Chick-fil-A logo on them, except they didn't say Chick-fil-A. They said, and I kid you not, you can verify this with Melody, they said thick filet. I'm I wish I had a picture, and it's out there on social media somewhere because the Chick-fil-A employees wanted to take a selfie with them. So we saw three employees, like, chase them outside. They get a picture. So somebody Instagrammed this. There's probably a hashtag thick filet somewhere. Uh, you, can, you may find it if you want to go research it. I didn't find it. But these guys had a, hash, had a shirt that said thick filet on. Why am I saying that? Not just to make fun of some CrossFit bros. I'm saying that to say this. Those muscles didn't just happen. How did those muscles come? They came by resistance. They came by them choosing, I'm going to do something that's uncomfortable, that doesn't feel good, to build some strength to prepare me for something else I'm going to go through. I wonder how often God allows us to go through something uncomfortable because he's got something greater for us down the road that he's preparing us for. And if you want to be stronger, if you want to be better as a follower of Jesus, if you want a faith that takes root, that doesn't wither in the midst of the new season that's going to come, you're going to have to learn to look at that discomfort and that lack of ease as an opportunity to grow, as an invitation to build your roots a little bit deeper. Matthew 7, Jesus says this. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. What is that? It's easy. It's a simple road to travel down. It's easy to find. It doesn't have a ton of traffic. It's easy to get there. It's convenient. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. 
What's a narrow road? A narrow road is one that's a little difficult to navigate. It's a road that might have some, some unexpected curves. It might have some things. And let, let me just say this, too. The context here is not, this was 2,000 years ago. We weren't driving minivans, right? These, these roads were roads that you were walking. You were navigating these with your own physical body. And so Jesus says that narrow road that we would call this a trail, that narrow trail that nobody wants to go down because it's a little rocky, because it's a little difficult, because, man, there's another one that's a little straighter and a little more convenient. That's the one that brings life. That's the one that brings the fruit in your life that God wants you to have. That's the one he wants us to experience. And so we got to be people who start choosing the thing that's not as convenient, that's maybe a little bit more painful and brings some more resistance. The book of James puts it this way. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy. Everybody say, pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy when you face trials. Why? Because you know. Not hopefully, not maybe, not there's a chance, and so just cling to this little glimmer of hope. He says it's a promise of God. You know that the testing of your faith is going to develop something in you. It's going to develop perseverance. He says, let perseverance finish its work. Don't short circuit it. Don't tap out. Don't say, man, that Jesus stuff didn't work for me. Let it finish its work. So what? So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle James to write a letter calling God's people to grow up. And I think those same words would be very applicable to our generation. I love a lot of things about our church. I love a lot of things about the generation of church that we live in. I think we understand love. I think we understand grace much more than the churches that I grew up in. I mean, I think there's some real strengths in our generation, and I'm grateful for those strengths. But I'll say this, maturity is not one of the things that I think is, really marks Christians in our generation. James says you're going to have to persevere through some trials to get to some maturity on the other side. I want to see God's people grow up. I want to see me grow up. I want to start moving towards some maturity I haven't experienced. And that means we're going to have to persevere through some trials, through some tragedies, through some troubles. I wonder, could it be that God's preparation comes packaged as pain? Ponder on that with me for a moment. I know that's not something that we probably teach on a lot or that you've thought of a lot as a Christian. But could it be that God's preparation becomes, comes packaged for us as pain? Let me illustrate this for you. God wanted Joseph to be prepared to save his nation from starvation. How did he prepare Joseph for this role? Joseph was rejected by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. Right? He was falsely accused of a horrible crime. He was forgotten by someone who promised, I'm going to help you get out of prison. He went through a whole lot of pain before he was used by God in a great way. Let's talk about David. David, man, slayed to Goliath, right? Man, one of the greatest stories in Scripture, one of the ones that we get most excited about. He knocked over this giant. Which one of us would not want to slay spiritual giants? Which one of us wouldn't be, want to be used by God to set people free, to bring deliverance? Well, how did David get to the place where he was chosen to slay Goliath? He was faithful in an anonymous position as a shepherd boy. And while he's watching his sheep, his sheep get attacked by a bear, get attacked by a lion. 
And David has to put an end to the life of this bear and an end to the life of this lion. I don't know about you, but if I encountered a bear and a lion at my job, I'd be polishing up my resume. Right? I'd be ready to move on to something a little easier, a little safer, something where I got some hazard pay if I did have to suffer through the bear and the lion. But David didn't do that. David stayed faithful where he was planted anonymously. He didn't slay the bear and the lion and be celebrated. People didn't shout his name because he killed a bear and a lion. Nobody even knew except the sheep, and the sheep were too dumb to even say thank you. But he was faithful where he was, and it prepared him for what God had. Next, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, on arguably the greatest day in the history of the church, the day that the church expands by 3,000 people, 3,000 people baptized in one day. What an incredible event. What an amazing day to experience as the Spirit of God falls and begins to fill his people chosen for such an amazing honor. How did God prepare Peter for that? A few weeks before, Peter failed three times. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied his Lord and his Savior. Maybe you're here right now, and you don't think you have any opportunity to be used by God because you've failed too big. Because you've denied God too publicly. Man, you, you had an opportunity, but you blew it. If you're listening to that voice, I'm telling you this morning, that is not the voice of God. The voice of God says a righteous man falls down seven times, but he gets back up and he keeps moving to what God has for him. God prepared Peter for his purpose in the midst of Peter's failure. God never wastes a hurt. I don't care if it's a hurt you brought on yourself or a hurt somebody else brought on you. God uses our pain to prepare us for our purpose that was a good time to say amen <laughs> hallelujah we've been reading primarily in the book of john today the same disciple the same one who was so close to jesus named john didn't just write his gospel but he wrote some letters much later in life in fact m many of the the last books in the new testament not just the last order in the order but some of the last that were written and in his first letter to the church in verse 4, he echoes a lot of what we've already seen. He says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. If you're truly born of God, you're going to overcome the trial, the trouble, the tr difficulty you're facing right now. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Cling tight to your faith. Hold tight to your faith. Trials and troubles are going to help prove your faith. They're going to help prepare you for your purpose. God's going to use them again. God doesn't necessarily bring them. I'm not saying God's the cause of them. But God's not going to let anything be wasted in your life. Amen? Amen. If you're here today and you're far from Jesus, you're worshiping with us online, and, and you don't know this Jesus who brings great joy on the other side of great grief, I need you to know this. Jesus never promised that he came to save you from your pain. It's not the promise that he made, but he did make a promise. He promised that he came to save you from your sin. And if you'll receive his salvation from your sin, if you'll give your life to him as Lord and Savior, then the rest of that will ultimately come. There will be joy on the other time of sorrow. There, there, there will be peace on the other side of this life. There will be pain for a little while in this life. But there will be a pain-free existence in the next life. But don't choose Jesus for a pain-free next life. 
Jews him because he wants to save you from your sins in this life. So he wants to set you free. He wants to restore you to relationship with God. He wants to send his Holy Spirit to live in you, to empower you, to make an impact right here in this generation that he's placed you in. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we close our message today?